Hi, and welcome to another episode of Legend Lore, the podcast series where two Dungeon Masters flip through one Dungeons & Dragons book at a time, giving their insights on the pros and cons of the publication in question. Normally, I'd be sitting here in the studio with a Wizards of the Coast publication in my hands, ready to tear it apart with a co-host and dig into the guts of it, but this episode is going to be a little bit different because I'm joined via Zoom by a third-party content creator, Trent who's here on behalf of Gelatinous Cubicle to talk about their newest project called Tales from the Firelit Gathering. It launches today on Kickstarter and is a collection of very impressive homebrew content, and I have gone back and forth through this PDF about six or seven times myself. But before we dig into it, hi, Trent, how are you? Hey there, Adam, I'm doing great. Tell us a little bit uh, about yourself and your history with tabletop role-playing games before we jump into this. Yeah, for sure. So I and the rest of the team members have been playing uh, TTRPGs now collectively for decades. I'm actually probably the quote-unquote least experienced as far as dungeon mastering goes. I've been DMing now for about five years, uh, so I got on the 5th edition train just a little late. But my other two team members have been playing D&D 5th edition and in some cases games before that. So 3.5, Pathfinder uh, and other role playing systems uh, since they were in you know middle and high school. So we've been at it now for quite some time. Uh, I myself have been, you know, a bit of a tabletop gamer for a very long time. Uh, my parents uh, always had family game night going on. So I have a lot of exposure to board games. Uh, I was part of the Pokemon, Yu-Gi-Oh, Magic the Gathering, trading card game craze. Yep, yep, so yep. I was playing, I've been playing, you know, they've they've hooked me. Uh, and I've been playing those for pretty much since I could read. Um, and I've also been an avid just video gamer for my whole life. So a lot, a lot of exposure to games. Yeah, you've seen a whole lot of different kinds of mechanics and design choices and, and different storytelling techniques then um, over the years. For sure. uh, and uh I gotta ask, what's your favorite class to play? My favorite class? That's a tough one. I tend to lean towards casters. And if I had to pick now, I would probably say sorcerer. As much as I like wizard, and I'm playing wizard in a campaign right now, uh, sorcerer is really kind of edged out for me. Because A, I like having a lot of choices, right? So mm -hmm. I get to choose my spells, express my character through my spell choices. And sorcerers allow me to really kind of push that to the next level with metamagic. Yeah. Um, metamagic is probably one of my favorite mechanics in fifth edition. And I, I'm at the point now where I've experimented with just about all of the metamagic that's available. And uh, it's always good fun to just use your spells in really unexpected ways. <laughs> What's your favorite playable race? Playable race? Uh, well, <laughs> so my first character was a Goliath. Uh, and I've been an addict ever since. Uh, there's something that's really fulfilling about playing just someone who's larger than everyone else. Uh, and Stone's Endurance is just never not useful. So yeah, if I had fair. to only choose, if I had to only choose one race, that would be it. Though I'll admit that I'm often boring and go with variant humans. <laughs> um, and my last one is, what's your favorite monster? Favorite monster? Uh, am I allowed to say well, one of our creations? <laughs> no, no, no. Out of the published material that that the listeners know. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Sure. Oh, man. Probably, I mean, it would be wrong for me to not say an ooze. I'll give an honorable mention to rust monsters. Um, there's something <laughs> really, really spectacular about 
the first time you throw rust monsters at new players um and they start to realize that there's more there's more at their hit points right yeah um so on that note uh being gelatinous cubicles i gotta say black puddings with the similar sort of destruction mechanic but uh i think we've had in my many years of playing now i think we've had two player deaths to to black puddings so far oh that's <laughs> very probably... specific yeah 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 we've we've fought dozens of them but they're <laughs> uh they always raise the stakes in really interesting ways so gelatinous cubicle uh you guys are you're in florida right now are is everybody in gelatinous cubicle in florida or are you like across the states or international yes uh so we're all based in florida uh we all met at a college in florida actually uh we were oh, roommates right. for some time uh that's how i got into fifth edition actually was playing with uh some of my team members and we you know would have these long talks that would go well into the early hours of the morning about just our campaigns and ideas and over years and years that translated into us creating a homebrew um and eventually we had all moved away and we were all just sort of you know living our post-college life sort of moving from job to job and we decided after all having saved up some money that we were gonna sort of come together and take a chance and see what we could do as far as just like game design goes. So we have been now uh, creating content for fifth edition for about three years. Um, and just about a year ago, we all moved in together um, and we have sort of a collective office that we operate out of. And uh, we've just sort of been on the grind seeing what we can make happen. So that's the story, I suppose. Yeah, and you've done a lot. Like uh, you say, three years, but I had the pleasure of browsing your website. I'm going to throw the link to it in the show notes below for anybody that wants to go check it out. But um, you guys have a Patreon that's up and running, and there are a number of different oh backgrounds and races, classes and subclasses. There are feats and magic items and spells and monsters. Um, who is uh who is the main creative brain behind uh? the actual crunchy D&D stuff, or is it kind of spread out among everybody? So it really depends on the project. Um, part of why I like working on the team uh, that I do is because we all, you know, obviously we have this common interest of fifth edition, but we all kind of bring our own experiences to the table. And so we will just sort of brainstorm and come up with different ideas. Sometimes our patrons will send us ideas uh sometimes you know sometimes we'll just have gotten really into some video game or some show that inspired us and basically uh whoever feels particularly passionate about a project will take it on um and from there we pass it around amongst ourselves give each other criticism and feedback to kind of iron out the details and we all kind of have our own special place in the process uh the team member james is particularly good when it comes to mechanics wording and things like that, making things, you know, really proper in terms of how they function, word, yeah. sort of like an official, you know, Wizards of the Coast uh, uh, publication. And meanwhile, uh, Nona, another team member, handles like uh, the flavor text, and I tend to handle sort of the, the layout design. Um, beyond that, though, as far as just designing pieces of content, it's really whoever feels 
particularly passionate about it will take sort of a, a lead position creatively on that project. It does sound like it's a huge collaboration then among the group. You, There's not one person spearheading it. For sure. I mean, I definitely uh, sort of slip into the director role oftentimes, but that's that's very much a uh, it's just to sort of keep things moving, if that makes sense. Oh, um, yes. Yes, that makes yeah. sense. I understand that position. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Exactly. So it sounds like we might be two kindred spirits in that regard. <laughs> um, so what part, uh, which one is your favorite thing to design? Like backgrounds, classes, monsters, spells? What's your bread and butter? Uh, probably my two favorite things are monsters and subclasses. Um, the reason for those being that I find those are some of the most impactful ways to either directly affect a session or directly affect a campaign or directly affect a character. Kind of my big thing when I create is I try to ask myself, um, what fantasy am I trying to help other people realize through the game, right? So I mentioned before that we take inspiration oftentimes from, from TV shows or books or whatever it be. And part of that is because, you know, there are d and is a very special game in that you can really realize something in a special, in, in a particular way. It's kind of an awkward way of answering this question. So I'm going to try and come <laughs> up with a better way of coming around it here. So essentially, we kind of approach creating content for D&D like a medium, sort of like an artistic medium, right? There's yep. a certain way you should write books uh, that will be much more effective in the medium of books. And the same is true of movies and so on and so forth. We kind of approach D&D uh, &D game design from that same perspective. So what makes game design special is you are using game mechanics to allow a player to realize some kind of fantasy, right? So I've lost sight of our original question here. <laughs> <laughs> it was uh, which one, uh, which kind of category are you the most excited about uh, about designing for? You said subclasses and monsters. Yeah. So, so as far as that goes, subclasses obviously have a really huge impact on how your character plays. You know, yeah. choosing a certain subclass is is very important and will affect you know the everything about your character from role play to combat to to anything else within the game. So it, to me, it just feels the most impactful. And then the same is kind of true from the other side of the table with the GM and monsters. Personally, I always try to build interesting sessions around monsters. So being able to provide interesting monster mechanics and some sort of, you know, lore hooks that will help a DM build a story is sort of what I'm most passionate about because it's, it's I guess, the most direct way to really provide something substantial to a game. Yeah, I'm going to say that uh, nine times out of ten, when you run into a monster, it's a direct conflict of some sort. Um, and the, the other, you know, 10% of the time, it's an indirect conflict. Uh, right, and our yeah, jobs... even if... Sorry, go ahead. You, yeah, even if it is indirect, you know, the, a, a good encounter with a monster is going to affect everything happening around it, right? So obviously you can have your random encounters and whatnot, but those really memorable encounters I find, even if it is, you know, a satyr who's not looking to hurt anyone, maybe he's causing a lot of chaos in a town somewhere. 
Um, and those kind of shenanigans, even if they're not direct conflicts or, you know, physical or violence necessarily, that tying monsters into the world and what's happening within it is um, is sort of paramount. Yeah, and that's one of the big complaints that we've had recently with the uh, Wizards of the Coast Productions is that we're not getting the lore that we used to get uh, in previous editions and even earlier in 5th edition as things right. become more um, setting agnostic. We are not right. getting that level of flavor and lore, which is going to help the the dungeon master or the players get more of a touchstone, a, a, a connection to the world and a purpose behind the conflict, a motivation behind yeah. it. So um, I'm excited to see, like I, like I say, I browse through, uh, through your website pretty extensively. There's a lot of lore in there. There's thought behind literally every decision and that's not true of most <laughs> most of the kickstarters stuff i've had the privilege of flipping through your your 28 page um preview uh document as well here and even your framing device is um is steeped in lore with most people could just say here's a collection of stuff or hey you know what we're really inspired by the plane of fire, here's a bunch of fire stuff in a PDF. But what you guys have done is you come up with this framing device to, that is a character in and of themselves, right? That is giving a a, um, a series of tales, I guess. Um, I mean, hell, is right in the name. It's Tales from the Firelit <laughs> Gathering, right? Um, but much, there's, yeah. this, there's this one character um, at the center of it all who is, I guess, um, extolling this information out to, in theory, other people sitting around a, a, this firelit gathering, right? Absolutely, um, yeah. I'd, I'd love to actually talk about that a little bit. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Can you tell me about, about this uh, this character and, and why you went with this decision for your... Uh, for your publication? Sure. Well, you say, you know, and I, I appreciate it very much that it feels like there's a bunch of thought put into every decision. I can say sometimes maybe a little too much thought, but <laughs> that's probably better than none at all. Yeah. Um, <laughs> as far as Tales from the Firelit Gathering goes, um, this book was originally conceived, as you say, we've been at this for quite some time. We have quite the collection that we've built. This was originally intended as sort of a remaster at, um, of all of our favorite content that we've created over the years um, and all of the content that we felt was the most impactful. And that idea, as it took shape, began to evolve. Uh, something that always has made us feel good as we're creating is when we get a comment along the lines of, you know, I... This is great because I've wanted to play a character like this for some time, and this is finally what's going to allow me to do so, right? Yeah. Homebrewing, uh, I can certainly say that when I began, uh, when we all began, we weren't very good at it. Uh, it's extremely challenging to get something that uh, feels good. As much, uh, as much shit as we give Wizards of the Coast, I do think that as far as mechanical design goes, they're, they're, they're pretty uh, top cut. So yes, this this was sort of our 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 remaster book. Uh, as the idea evolved, uh, we sort of began to take it in the direction of we. It's tough to find a way to tie things in together, as you say. A lot of people sort of just present a collection of things, which there's yeah. certainly nothing wrong with. But all in all, that tends to feel a little empty to me, and so. We really looked at what we had, which was this disparate collection of different material, 
Uh, and the through line that we found was a sort of our passion for it and, you know, what we had accomplished sort of as friends creating this material. Uh, and B, that all in all, the reason that we made what we were making uh, was the impact that it had on tables that, you know, people could come to our website and find all sorts of interesting ideas that they may not have thought of. And so we're saying, okay, we have all of these different ideas. Well, what if we played into that, right? Rather than just a collection, what if we found some way to frame this as a collection of tales from all around the world? So immediately, we've always been concerned with sort of playing against type and adding new ways of playing into fifth edition. Yep. So... Kazan was sort of conceptualized. He's this front character who is, you know, host, hosting these firelit gatherings and gathering these adventurers to hear about these, these tales that he's collected from all over the world. Uh, he was sort of conceptualized as a challenge in of himself uh, to sort of some long existing stereotypes within uh, really just tabletop role playing in general. So Kazan is an orc. Yep. Um, he's a very skinny orc. Uh, he's a very flashy orc, sort of flamboyant even, um, and a very, very wise orc. And so Kazan was conceptualized as a challenge to what an orc could be, right? And I, Kazan's I also whole deal, feel, yeah. I also feel just from what I know of him is that uh, he fills the niche that um, that Volo wants mm -hmm. to fill. And if Volo were to be beside uh, Kazan, uh, Volo would feel a little bit threatened. Uh, <laughs> Perhaps. And not just because of the teeth, right? Yeah. <laughs> no, but uh, but I feel like Kazan is a probably a better version of, uh, of Volo, who is unreliable at best, whereas Kazan is presenting actual uh, lore and whatnot beyond that. I don't know. I've heard this kind of. So it was a really, really cool. I get the impression he's like an eloquence bard almost. Um, Something like that. We yeah. uh, we don't have we haven't made a character sheet for him or anything, but we definitely have some 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 fun Easter eggs that we're planning on kind of you know seeding <laughs> throughout the book as far as Kazan is concerned. But that the consistency was definitely something we wanted to emphasize. You know, Kazan, it's we we wanted him to almost feel like he knew a little too much and was playing coy with that information sometimes, <laughs> right? Because yeah. we did want to establish him as a very reliable narrator, even if he's sort of strange and goofy uh, and we're not really sure where he's from or how he's been around for so long or how he's survived this long. Um, but the one thing we know is that we can go to Kazan's firelit gathering uh, and we can hear a story and we will be entertained and we will be safe and we will be among friends. And so that kind of idea of togetherness was also something we were trying to hone in on. Hence, not just Kazan, but his, you know, his recitals dubbed the firelit gathering. Um, so sort of I, playing, I yeah. sorry, I wanted to ask because there's a great, yeah. you know, cover piece of him extolling his is stories to a group of people um sitting around a fire are those characters sitting around the fire are those your player characters from before or are they just random D? &D? so we worked with an artist by the name of auntie hakasari uh and kazan was our primary concern with this cover 
So what we wanted to show with these characters, these are not our characters um, as, so no, these are, these are not our characters. Uh, what we wanted to do is sort of show, there's something I find with Dungeons and Dragons parties where they tend to be composed of, to put it lightly, sort of freaks in a way, right? Uh, everyone is special in their own unique way, right? Like exactly. No one, no one is a farmer and looks like a farmer. They may have come right. from a farm, but they're wild. Right. And so whenever whenever an adventuring party walks in the tavern, you know, everyone knows it's the adventuring party. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. what really what we wanted to do with these characters was two things. We wanted to show Kazan and, and sort of frame him as the primary piece here. Even the fire is, you know, lighting him up in the center of the page. And then as far as the characters go, we wanted to show that they were sort of a hodgepodge group of individuals. Uh, so mm -hmm. you'll find they're all dressed very differently. Uh, they're all, you know, completely different races. Uh, we've even got uh, different ages. Um, and sort of the one connecting factor is that they're all coming together uh, to hear this story. So I suppose the idea was we wanted to make it feel like it could be anyone's adventuring party, right? Yeah. Uh, we wanted to sort of play to the idea of an adventuring party as almost like a frame around Kazan himself. It, you could you can see that in the artwork too. The fact that it's like the the main adventuring archetypes are there, right? Yes, yeah, we wanted everything. We've got our mage on the left, our warrior, got sort of an elvish ranger running in from the side, and finally, of course, we've got our bard with the uh, dragonborn. Yeah. So um, you said a couple times this is a bit of a remaster. Um, this book is going to be a remaster. Mm -hmm. Do you are you planning on adding new stuff as well, or is it just going to be um, retooling the stuff from uh, the website or your Patreon? Yes, there is going to be plenty of new material as well. Um, what we did to sort of start planning the project was we sort of just made a, a spreadsheet, essentially, of everything it is that we've made. We organized it into differing categories, and we sort of picked our favorites from each. Uh, and sometimes that left us with holes. And so we've got lots of holes that we're looking to fill with new content. Uh, we're looking to sort of get uh, our audience's input on that and the backers' input in some cases to sort of help us decide what we're going to include in the book. Um, sort of as we've done before, uh, I mentioned we do sort of votes with our audience to help, you know, give us ideas. But uh, yeah, the, the, the book is going to contain both remasters as well as plenty of, of new material as well. Really, the through line is that we are just trying to sort of fill holes, fill gaps in D&D, &D, uh, 5th edition, where it seems like there are certain character archetypes that should exist yep. that don't. Uh, and we're just trying to sort of, I guess, serve on those underserved ideas. But I'm sure we'll get into that as we sort of go through our uh, our preview here. Do you have roughly an idea of how long the finished product is going to be, like by page count, maybe? Sure. So roughly, we've still, you know, we're still in the process of of, of creating everything. Um, but our our sweet spot is over 200 pages. Um, some of what's going to end up in the book and the length is going to depend on the level of funding and the stretch goals we hit. Uh, obviously, the more books we sell, uh, you know, the more we can include because the bigger your book, the more it costs to print. And so if we sell enough, then we can sort of make up for some of those lost margins. 
uh, and sort of expand the content of the book a little. But uh, I'd say at the very least, expect the book to be just over 200 pages. And uh, we're probably not looking to go any higher than 250. But uh, I mean, we'll just have to see what happens. Sure. Um, I guess my uh, my last question before we start to dig into this PDF, this preview uh, that mm -hmm. you sent is, um, um, are you looking at uh, filling in, you say there's a lot of filling in the gaps in, in D&D, a lot of the archetypes that aren't there and whatnot. And I really do get that impression when I'm looking at this, like, hey, I'm glad this has been added. There are a few bits and pieces that um, are reminiscent of older editions as well um, that I'm like, oh, cool. Okay, that's come back now. I myself have my own homebrew rules for things like a buckler. You've included that in your item list. I've got buckler rules in my homebrew, right? And that's a throwback awesome. to 3.5. So so it, as cool as that is, um, are you guys looking at filling in gaps in lore? Is this supposed to be like campaign setting agnostic or Forgotten Realms? Or do you just kind of leave it for, you know, pick and choose what you want as a player when you when you open the book? Sure. So it's meant to be setting agnostic primarily. Um, we are definitely going to be including, we're trying to go deep on the lore uh, without giving you specific, say, locations, right? So like so, the mention of, yeah. of the outskirts of a village as opposed to the outskirts of this village. Exactly, right? So, so we want this to be useful uh, first and foremost <laughs> um and so we are we are doing our best to sort of strike the balance between giving you enough information about these concepts to inspire you uh while also not getting so specific with it that you can't drop it into your own you know homebrew setting or even if you want to the forgotten realms or anything else um Really, it's we're trying to be modular with uh, what we're doing here. There is one. Um, I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but there's one subclass that's coming up here, um, the Ranger subclass that you have, which fits so perfectly in in the Forgotten Realms, but also in Eberron and Spelljammer. And it was the thing that I that made me raise my eyebrows more than anything else and say, this could fit anywhere. It's weird that we don't have this already. Um, so that was, let's, uh, anyway, let's jump into the, into the PDF, if you don't mind. So, um, I'm going to do this a little bit like we normally do on a legend lore. So I'll give, uh, some brief descriptions here. So the audience knows what we're looking at. Um, but we've got this beautiful splash page, this, uh, cover of the tales from the firelit gathering. Um, I keep wanting to say tales from the awning portal just because it's worked its way. <laughs> like my mouth shape wants to say that, but oh, for sure. No, I've got it sitting on my shelf right here. And it's, <laughs> it's staring at me as I uh, work on this project every day. Well, it's interesting because tales from the awning portal is very much um, seven adventures. I think it's seven, seven right. adventures where Dernan is telling you a bunch of different tales uh, in a bar about things that that people have like adventures they've gone on, and it's the uh, the framing device is one person telling stories, except mm -hmm. that book is all about um, the adventures that people went on, whereas this right. book is all about the things you can run into, right? Right. And it's got right. a very similar, a very familiar feel, and yet it's it's totally different format as well. So I do like the parallels there. That felt really good to me um, when I opened this up and I started to flip through it. The contents and credits page here, I mean, this is just the... Uh, 
the preview PDF, right? So there's 28 pages here, and then page 28 is the OGL, right? So there's 27 right. pages of, of content. Um, you have a number of illustrators. Do you guys, yes. did you hunt out and pay artists? Are these friends of yours? Are they collaborators on other projects that have all come together on this? Uh, these are people we've hunted down uh, one way or another. Some of them are artists that we've just had pre-existing connections with. Uh, mm -hmm. And some of them, we did a lot of uh, sort of scouting in terms of potential artists. One of our biggest concerns is with this book, you know, obviously we're trying to represent such a breadth of ideas. One of our biggest concerns is making sure that things feel sufficiently unique from one another. Yep. And so, you know, it was very important to us from the outset to not only work with a large number of artists, but a large number of different kinds of artists uh, and artists from different places and backgrounds. So I can tell just done, based on the names here that we've got people from all over the world, right? Yes. Yeah. And that was that was an absolute pleasure to do. And I think it's it's really been a great experience just sort of watching even for just the preview things shake out uh, because all of these people have sort of brought their own flavor to things and it keeps uh, I find at least as 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 you scroll through the pages it keeps things feeling fresh so now I'm also going through the contents and credits here and it looks like there's four of you that have really focused on the game design there's four you know um, brain trusts behind this entire thing yes. um. When you talk about game design uh, itself, the four of you, are you all D&D players together? You all sit at the same table? Yes. Uh, we actually even do, we, we we have our own sort of format of campaign. Obviously, we've done campaigns where we have a single DM. Uh, we've done plenty of those. I mean, we've played in dozens and dozens of campaigns with each other over the years now. But um, we have a format where we actually pass the role of DM around the table uh, <laughs> in sort of one continuous story. Uh, and I think it's funny because it's almost analogous to, you know, how how our, our, our game design philosophy functions uh, in that we sort of, you know, one of us begins something and then it gets passed off and so on and so forth. And through that collaboration, we really come to something great. Uh, I will say that one of our members is sort of focusing on other things. So Julienne uh, has been with us since day one. Um, and a lot of the content in here is remastered versions of their creations. Uh, but they are sort of just doing what they can uh, from the sidelines as far as this project goes, uh, just to help us out. Uh, right now, the core team is definitely the three of Nona, myself, and James. All right. And then uh, it looks like you've collaborated a little bit with uh, Spectre Creations and uh, Portent Press and Shiny Press as well. Yeah, so, yeah. So there have been other people involved in this as well. Yeah, some, some folks, uh, so actually, they sort of those special thanks are people that uh, when we sort of entered the homebrew, when we entered the D&D homebrew creation space, uh, we found that people were super, super supportive and welcoming. And those are just some of our our, our friends from day one, really, who have been, you know, giving us uh, advice and supporting us. And so that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, moving on to uh, the next page, we've got using this pre uh, this preview, which is um, obviously probably not going to be in the finished product, but there'll probably be a similar page, you know, how to use this book. That's pretty right, standard for a lot of homebrew stuff. Mm -hmm. um, uh, as well as the idea, <laughs> we've got this little message here 
uh, from Kazan himself. Uh, this, I have to say, the moment I hit this page, this felt like fifth edition. Just the way that you have it formatted, the different, um, the fonts are just slightly different. The coloration is slightly different, but the layout, the sidebars, the way that the tables are laid out and the spacing of it all feels very official in ways that other like big publications don't feel like um, I've gone through Matt Colville's books. I love everything that Matt Colville has done. Um, I would jumped on buying both of those books and they uh, feel like a different game when you open them up. That stuff can be used mm -hmm. in fifth edition, but it doesn't feel like fifth ed. The uh, Taldore campaign setting the critical role released um, very cool. Didn't quite feel based on the layout. Um, like this was a book that belonged in the lineup of, of fifth edition and a lot of the PDFs. I recently went through all of the online releases from the PDFs through the D and D beyond stuff, the official wizards of the coast online stuff. And uh, I released a, like four episodes of breaking all of those down. Some of them feel good. Some of them feel like this is a third party thing that they kind of put a stamp on and it doesn't feel like D and D. Uh, this very much does whatever whoever designed the the layout and and the graphic design of this hit the nail on the head this was this feels fucking bang on so um well i really appreciate that uh that that would be yours truly <laughs> um, that, <laughs> well, that has been I, I i would like to speak to that just a little bit um sure. sort of our our philosophy as a company has always been uh sort of from day one that we want to create a create things you know not that not that watsi is unchallengeable in what they do uh mm -hmm. but they do i find a great job of fleshing out uh sort of layout design keeping things simple and digestible while also you know fairly uh fairly fleshed out and so our goal was to use that as inspiration and create something that feels that would feel at home on your shelf with your other fifth edition supplements while also having just a bit of distinct flavor from us. Right. And I, like you say, I mean, Matt Coville produces amazing things and I certainly think it's great that creators can really sort of break away uh, and develop their own highly unique voice. Uh, but our concern has always been sort of a synthesis between fifth edition, which is what we exclusively develop for, Mm -hmm. uh and sort of our own spin on fifth edition i suppose yeah and i have followed a number of other kickstarters and looked at other people's projects uh i don't know if anybody any of the listeners know this but about every three or four months someone will send me a homebrew project i'll flip through mm -hmm. it and give notes back and a lot of the times it reads like a word document or the formatting is just a little bit off and something a little bit funky that doesn't feel good to read this sure. does feel good like this this is easily accessible i know where to look for the information and the and the necessary pieces at a glance even if i'm not familiar with every word in the book because i've read other fifth edition material so um this is really lined up well and uh, that and just the high quality of the art it feels like a dnd book right um and i don't I don't say that lightly. I have been very critical even of Wizards of the Coast art in the past. Um, it seems to be the only thing they're doing well these days uh, in their publications. Um, but this art that you guys are producing is uh, is as good as, if not better, the 5th uh, edition art that we've seen so far. 
Um, the very really first thing appreciate that, we... that, yeah, and that's I mean, to some degree, that's just the <laughs> the team we've managed to bring together, right? Just I really think the the uh, team of artists is uh, or rather really just the 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 depth of the number of artists we're working with uh, has been a boon to that. Well, yeah, but it's it's every little detail too. Like when you when you flip to the first um, page of chapter one, you have this nice piece of art here. I and again, I don't know how this is going to lay out in the final product, but in the preview, there is a single what looks like a martial character with lightning swirling around her in the middle of some sort of combat maneuver. But the thing about the um, the border between the the page and the art. Uh, where it is that kind of like clouded um, shift from from the artwork onto the page itself, that's even out of the the majority of the wizards' books. And these are the details that you don't see in other in other um, third party productions or kickstarters or whatnot. This level of um, of co- congruity almost between what what you guys are producing and what um, what wizards has produced. I got to say, I'm legitimately excited. The level of detail on this is something that I harp on a lot when the detail and the design and the lore falls apart in Wizards Mm -hmm. of the Coast. And uh, I have not been, thus far, not been able to poke any holes in this. I've gone through this PDF a few times now and very, very happy uh, with what I see. Um, Let's go go into the content, though. The very first thing that you guys gave us is a single, um, because it's a preview, but it's a single... um, a new playable race called Wakeful. And the Wakeful is essentially a skeleton uh, playable race, uh, but dead, but but not dead. Um, There's uh, like lying dormant. There's a whole uh, sidebar about the dormancy. The art here is really cool. And uh, if you're watching this on YouTube, we're going to have little bits and pieces of the art up in the video. Um, But uh, this is, it's, really fun and really flavorful in ways that I was not expecting it to be, right? Um, You guys also have a a great grasp on language as well. I did laugh out loud when I saw the osteopathic nature. Um, (laughs) There 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 are little bits and pieces that I like, but this is not undead. This is a construct, right? Uh, Even though it's a skeleton. And so it's seeing it kind of from different perspectives. different ways of looking at uh, how this character um, might interact. My favorite thing about it is that you can actually rip the um, the rib bones out and use them as, as daggers, which is yes. a lot of fun. Um, yes. And it's that level of creativity here that we're not seeing in the playable races from Wizards of the Coast now. Now it's just, and this one's an owl and this one's a rabbit, right? Oh yeah, the, the beast folk, the, the never-ending beast folk. The yeah, just just an onslaught of anthropomorphic nonsense at this point because that seems to be what they think we want. Um, but uh, I do appreciate this level of um, of design for the playable race. Do you have more that you're going to add as well to the to the final copy? Yes, of- yes, we uh, we're looking at around four to six player races right now including the wakeful uh, which is among our favorites um and all of them are priority i i, I will say some of them are uh <laughs> are beast folk adjacent we are certainly well, looking at octopi and things like that but our priority with everything is to make make it feel distinct some of the yeah. problems i have with beast folk is not necessarily the number of them but the number of them that exist without 
much thought put into why they exist. You know, if I'm going to play a lion or a rabbit or whatever it is that I'm interested in playing, um, I, I think it's important that, again, homebrew is meant to deliver on fantasy. So you have to provide the player with ways of engaging with that concept through mechanics. Um, yeah. And some official races are more successful than others, to be sure. But that, for our player races, the priority is to make them feel distinct. Um, as far as the Wakeful are concerned, uh, it's kind of our take on the undead playable race, uh, where obviously they're creature-type construct and not undead. Part of the reason we did that was because undead are so contentious in what they can be in settings, right? Uh, sometimes undead are entirely mindless, you know, pure forces of evil, um, and it just doesn't make sense necessarily to have a player character walking around as an undead. Uh, meanwhile, sometimes undead are sort of just another creature in the world like any other. Yeah. Um, but with the wakeful, we wanted to sort of, you know, deliver on the fantasy of being an undead uh, and we can get into some of that with their abilities and things like that but um we also wanted to make sure that it didn't we didn't we didn't want players to simply be barred from playing the wakeful um just because they had baggage in regards to sort of the undead tag right yeah fair enough um one of the things i noticed here before we move on there's there's a lot to cover here we're on page five um and we're like halfway <laughs> through the episode but um one of the things i noticed is that you have decided not to include a ability score modifier are you putting yes. that in backgrounds the way that fifth edition is going or are you just steering clear of that or um... so this this was even a contentious issue among the team uh you know as much as it is among the the fifth edition player base it seems um Ultimately, what we decided was that when we began, uh, obviously, ability score improvements were sort of the standard. Then we started to see Wizards of the Coast sort of phase them out. Uh, there was a time where we provided them as options. Um, and really what we found was that it sort of left, it, it gave a suggestion, but I'm just not sure how helpful of a suggestion it was. And we, in the in the interest of allowing you to build unique characters, this book is meant to help you build characters that are uniquely yours. We wanted to really just give people the freedom to interpret everything else uh, as far as the race's mechanics um, for themselves and simply just choose the ability score that either felt appropriate to the race or uh, felt appropriate to whatever class it is they decide to play alongside it. You know, we want a wakeful to be able to be a barbarian as much as a wakeful can be a rogue or a bard or anything else. So Yeah. Okay. Speaking of barbarian, uh, the very first subclass we get is Path of the Primal Sentry. Um, yes. One of the things that I love about this is, much like we're seeing in Tasha's now and a lot of the other books, is we're getting these little quotes at the beginning of each section. I'm assuming this is Kazan talking as well in, in his voice. Um, yes. Because we have, uh, it takes a beautiful kind of madness to be empathetically aligned with a thunderstorm, which is just <laughs> a great quote. Um, 
but every single one of these sections, I mean, the the Wakeful had one as well. They all got they all have these quotes, and you're starting to get the flavor of who this character is as well. Um, and it's right, it's a right. lot of fun. Uh, I don't want to spend too much time going through the mechanics of them. I've gone through them, and they all seem very balanced. They also are giving the appropriate um, kind of uh, feature and um, and trait, the class feature at the appropriate level. So that it feels like it's balanced against other ones in their own class as well. So this scales at about the same rate as other barbarians do, um, instead of being front loaded or back loaded or or anything as well. But um, I thought it was really interesting that you guys decided. I mean, barbarians are are known for their inability to cast spells when they rage, and right. then you made a magic barbarian. That's right. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so. I think, honestly, that in a nutshell is sort of the impetus behind this book in a lot of ways, uh, <laughs> sort of challenging sort of some preconceived notions about what certain characters can or can't be. Um, I will say uh, the the primal century certainly approaches casting in a very unique way uh, so that it doesn't feel out of place. Because one thing we don't want to do is while we're challenging these 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 sort of traditions we don't want those challenges to feel cheap um we don't just want to allow a barbarian to simply cast because we say it can now so yeah. we were really looking ways for ways to make spell casting feel like it played alongside uh the barbarian uh class so the primal century allows you to when you enter a rage you simultaneously, um, you know, depending on what the spell is, can cast a concentration spell during that rage. And so in that way, what's happening is you are using your rage as a barbarian. You're using that state to channel forces of nature. And so we're giving you access to concentration spells that are both druidic, uh, or rather, we're giving you access to concentration spells that are druidic, so from the druid and ranger spell list. Yeah. Uh, and while you are concentrating on those spells, you are raging. And so we really, we found sort of the congruency between those two mechanics and tied them together so that this felt, you know, like a really cool addition and an appropriate addition too. Yeah. I, I really like this. The flavor of it is is really fun and I enjoyed it quite a bit. Um. And uh, again, the 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 words you're using, the language, the the different names of the um, class features, reckless casting, savage spells, force of nature. These things sound like a barbarian, and it feels good, right? Um, as right. someone who knows fifth edition, who has DM for a number of barbarians at my tables, this feels natural. It feels better than the wild magic barbarian. Um, Fair enough. I, I I appreciate that. It's um that was definitely one of our starting points. But I think I think part of my problem that I've had with Wild Magic Barbarians is uh I suppose the, the lack of choice. I mean, I like chaos. I really yeah. love Wild Magic Sorcerer actually, <laughs> but um there's sort of there's a lack of choice associated with it, and there's a limited nature to it in terms of the wild magic barbarian only has eight options available on the spell on the wild magic effects table. Yeah. And so it's it's kind of disappointing to 
to A, not have control over that, and B, so often get overlapping options, at least with the with the wild magic sorcerer, you know, you may not have control over what's happening, but it's going to feel really unique every time. Mm -hmm. Let's move on to the next one, which is a monk subclass. Uh, this is the way of the brawler. I yes. I thought that we have needed something like this. Um, the the and we have a tavern brawler as like I think it's a feat now. Yes, yes, um, but it doesn't feel like it's enough. We need. I, I've always thought that it would be a fighter, but I like mm -hmm. it as a monk. It it feels like this is bare knuckle boxing out in the parking lot, right? <laughs> yes, absolutely. Uh, street fighting was a huge point of inspiration for this. Uh, this was actually the first piece of homebrew that I ever created. Um, and so that was maybe five years ago I began working on this. And it's been through, you know, maybe four or five iterations since. Um, I really love martial arts. Um, it's something I've been involved in for a long time. And thus, if I have to play a martial character, oftentimes it's going to be a monk. Um, I, I like monks quite a bit. Something that I find, you know, a bit tedious about monks or something that can get tedious at least is just how much baggage there is in terms of flavor. I mean, it's great to be able to play sort of a martial arts master and be associated with a temple or a, a monastery, but that's not appropriate for every monk. That's not appropriate for every character. Uh, and so Way of the Brawler was sort of a way to take those ideas regarding street fighting uh, and apply it to a monk. I mean, I think it's fair to say that, you know, monks represent sort of a mastery of hand-to-hand -hand combat. And even if they're not in a monastery or training with a master of some kind, street brawlers, at least accomplished ones, uh, have certainly honed a skill. And so it felt appropriate to kind of tie the two ideas together and allow sort of a more rough and tumble fighter uh, to sort of gain access to key. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and honestly, the, the idea, I think you're you're dead on. The idea of the martial artist who sits on a mountaintop is one flavor. Yes. But appar apparently, as far as Wizards goes, it's every flavor. So it's mm -hmm. nice to get something different. Um, yep. uh, after that, here we go. Here's the Ranger subclass that I was talking about that feels like it could fit in Eberron or in uh, Spelljammer or the Forgotten Realms. This is the Ooze Rancher. It took me a while to wrap my brain around the, this as a ranger, um, sure. and, but it's so much. It's so much fun. I like the fact that it has a an increased spell list. Uh, I like the fact that everything about it is about ooze and slime and the flavor as as a ranger. Um, and you actually have uh, stats for the ooze companion here yes. as well, which is a load of fun, and it gets the ability to do a bunch of stuff. Um, like, uh, it has its own reaction. It has the ability to bounce around. Um, and it was uh, spider climb for an ooze is always something that we should be seeing. And of course it's included here. Um, the thing though, that stood out to me that kind of set me off in another direction was the artwork. Um, and sure. this character, uh, is in a wheelchair in yes. clearly in a battle wheelchair, because there are spikes coming off of the wheels. Like this is in a, an, uh, a um, paraplegic actual adventurer, not yes. someone sitting in a tavern, right? Yep, and inclusion seems to be a serious consideration across the board in Tales of the Firelit uh, Gathering. So, and right. it's it's not preachy, and it's not pulling focus from the energetic and inspirational world of fantastical Dungeons and Dragons. 
it feels sure. natural. It's a really smooth and nice balance that has a lot of content creators, or sorry, that a lot of content creators don't necessarily think of immediately when they're writing their own content, right? They think about, uh, here's what I can do, and I want to be able to do more, not what can other people do, right? So mm -hmm. I wanted to just take a second out for just a moment and ask you, why is it so important to you and the rest of Gelatinous Cubicle to to have this level of inclusion um, in your work? Uh, what has inspired you guys to, to kind of look beyond just the average content creation? Sure. So that's that's kind of a, a deep question. Um, that's uh, how I so, roll. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No, I'm excited <laughs> to talk about this. So we, over the years, have sort of had, we've, we've been sort of a core group in terms of our, our play group. But over the years, we have played with so many different kinds of people. Um, we ourselves uh, are a fairly queer group of people. Um, it's part of uh, what brought us together. Uh, and as far as uh, people we've played with, uh, we've played with people from different backgrounds, uh, different beliefs. Uh, we've And we've played even with uh, dis uh, disabled individuals, uh, people without limbs. Um, and that was always something that I felt fifth edition never quite deliver on um again this this book is kind of to serve underserved concepts um and so as far as wizards of the coast is concerned you know fifth edition is a fairly inclusive game or at least the people i've played with are, are, are very friendly very warm very welcoming um but i feel nonetheless that the artwork that wizards of the coast provides um is a little bit behind in terms of what they could be doing in terms of representing different kinds of adventurers. Uh, I really appreciate that you mentioned, you know, it's not preachy because that's that's not our goal in any of this. Yeah. Uh, and I think that kind of thing can turn people off uh, fairly so. And that's that's not our goal. Our goal is not to to, you know, draw lines or say you must play this kind of character. It's it's the exact opposite. It's 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 to to break down barriers. It's to bring people together and really help you think about the possibilities as far as the kinds of characters that you can play. Um, and so that is that that has been sort of one of our central guiding principles just in terms of what what we integrate into this book and and of course that's not to say you're not going to have you know your big <laughs> muscular barbarians the page before we had a, uh, a a dwarf who is you know probably his his biceps are twice the size of his head but it <laughs> is know? it is to say that that's not the only thing you're going to see in this book right you're, yeah. you're we're really trying to give food for thought, give food for your imagination in terms of what's possible. I have to say, um, in all fairness, Wizards of the Coast has started moving in that direction. And for every step forward, they seem to take 10 fucking steps back. Like they do, for example, um, Mystic Odysseys of Theros gave us clearly LGBT characters in the artwork, but it's never mentioned anywhere in the actual lore. We've got, um, right. we've got all sorts of um, different playable races and creatures and whatnot that change gender, but it's never really mentioned the fact that the incubus and the succubus are the same creature now when they were different before the ability to swap gender. It's not a big deal. Kobolds can do it, and yet we wiped out that lore because they've discontinued Volos, 
right? right they right. gave us, um, uh, I don't think there's a Caucasian person in all of uh, Journeys Through the Radiant Citadel. And yet mm-hmm. Spelljammer gave us the Hadozi, which was so fucking problematic from just right. the concept from from square one all the way through. So it's like they're trying, but they don't understand yet. We got um, Eberron, uh, Keith Baker's uh, phenomenal creator. We talk so highly of Eberron on the podcast. Um, and they've got prosthetic limbs. And they also have magical prosthetic limbs. And I was kind of waiting to see that in other things. And we did get Alanic Ray, who is one of the um, famous NPCs in the Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft. And he's wheelchair bound as well. But that's one. Like, we're not getting enough. We, we're still getting more goblins and kobolds than we are getting, you know, non-cisgendered, non-straight, non-white people, right? Right. And and t- I think, too, in some ways, Watsi just overthinks things sometimes. And, you know, sometimes maybe underthinks things. Yeah. But I, we're really not trying to... to as you say, it, in Theros, there's representation throughout the art, but it's not really addressed yeah, and I and I have to wonder if that's a result of you know not considering it, or if that's a result of overthinking what a community response to something might be. Really, what we're trying to do with with this project is just present a, a variety of people and options in a very you know matter of fact uh, way, which I think is the the best way of just you know conveying something like this at the end of the day no matter who you're playing with as far as D is concerned we're all here to enjoy the game and so everything is simply presented from that standpoint yeah and i mean we have seen clearly in the last couple of months here the fact that the upper management and the actual content creators at wizards of the coast they are not necessarily aligned Right. No, the and no. there are money decisions being made, which is why I think they've pulled back on the drow and the orcs. And they mm-hmm. I think the money decisions are what gave us monsters of the multiverse so that they could be more quote unquote inclusive. Um, but they did it by excluding lore instead of right. including new lore, right? And you can right. see the content creators trying to do stuff with the art, and we're gonna bring Alanic Ray back, and we're going to focus this publication is going to be about this. But Radiant Citadel didn't get half of the publication uh, or the uh, media that Dragonlance got, right? Right. I to be honest with you, um, I, I I barely knew anything about it until I finally just through happenstance came across it through someone else. You know? Yeah. I, like honestly, I think that it is refreshing to see a group um that's producing content that is on the same page from the top to the bottom because that is clearly not the case with uh watsi and hasbro and um i don't want to say too much because they'll come at me with a lawsuit but uh (laughs) there it does feel like every decision they make to be inclusive is made by straight white guys in a boardroom right yeah i i i tend to agree um so, anyways, now I'm getting preachy, so I'm gonna I'm gonna move. On. <laughs> no worries. Um, back, back to the ooze rancher. The thing that I liked about this with the ooze companion is you also get a bunch of different. Um, besides the ooze companion, you get a bunch of these different class features at different levels. But um, much like an ooze, uh, you get to choose your consistency of rubbery, sticky, or stretchy, which I thought was really fun. That's uh, that's really neat, and it's it's cool to see and. You clearly had this designed before we got the new Dragonlance book. 
and they happen to design a parallel thing. Their lunar sorcerer lets you choose which phase of the moon in their class features. So full moon, half moon, or new moon. And uh, and it's very reminiscent of what you guys are doing here, which is really cool to see that design parallel happening. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. Uh, Ooze Rancher has been around now for for I think about six months or so, and so it's it's interesting that that parallel existed. I think part of that is we pay attention a lot to what Wizards is doing, and we try to understand why. Uh, because as much as we we might want to talk about uh, what Wizards does wrong, they do do a lot of things right. Yes, uh, especially in regards to game design. Um, the, the mechanics themselves. And so we try to stay up to date with what it is they're doing. Uh, and we try to have discussions about it amongst ourselves. So, what, so that even if there's something they're doing that we don't quite agree with, we don't quite align with, we at the very least understand why and try to take a lesson from it. Yes. I'm curious to see. <laughs> we do that on It's Mimic all the time. And <laughs> I think that the listeners know that I will go off on fucking tangents it drives some of the other hosts nuts why we'll go down a (laughs) hole about design decisions um and and lore decisions that they make um but i'm curious to see what their decisions are going to be for one dnd um it seems to me like their decisions are just wildly misplaced at this point but we are just operating off playtest material i'll tell you i like this preview feels better than all of the playtest material they've given us for one dnd um which wow drives me up the wall um that's that's high praise for me one dnd has been very scattershot um yeah. which to some degree i think is the point at this stage um well let's start throwing that, shit i'm not sure yeah, sticks, right? exactly i'm and i'm not sure what else i can say about it beyond specifics the next one was the sub uh subclass for the sorcerer which might be the most flavorful and this was the iron blood um and I got to say, the okay, so I'm going to read the quote. I'm told the best way to defeat a mage is to disarm them. Those witch hunters will have a conniption if they ever meet a mage who simply bleeds weapons. And the idea here is that you are pulling weapons from your own body, from your own blood and flesh, right? And yes. that's such a cool a cool image that I haven't seen before in D&D. Yeah, and, and so this is sort of a, a, a concept... Um, Man, I I used to follow comic books so much more heavily. Uh, yeah. Don't anymore. But I know there's 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 uh, an X Men character who can create uh, blades out of out of his bones. Uh, yeah, that's uh, it's Marrow, one of one of the Morlocks. I worked in a comic book store for a number of years, so. Oh sure. So, yeah. So gotcha, I, gotcha. I, I was about to say this feels very much like that, but with like blood magic on top of it, which is really cool. Yes, and it is. You know, we we do. That is one of the directions you can take the subclass. Another point of inspiration. I don't know if you've ever seen uh, the Fate Zero anime, um, but there's a character who can conjure weapons, and sort of his whole power is he just conjures weapons uh, from you know an otherworldly armor, right? And so the idea here is sorcerers are obviously very connected to their blood. It's what gives them their powers. Yeah. So one of the directions you can take this class, or the subclass rather, is to pull those weapons from your body, whether it be your bones or your blood. Uh, but another direction you can take is, you know, you your family has some sort of special connection. Your blood has some sort of special connection to weapons that allows you to conjure them out of the earth or um, you know, out of 
thin air or perhaps some extra dimensional pocket. Uh, yeah, it, so we really it, wanted does, to... it does feel a little bit like the sorcerer's answer to the um, the Pact of the Blade Warlock, right? Yes, very much so. That was that was sorcerer didn't have its equivalent of blade singing or Pact of the Blade, and so we felt it was time to give it something like that. And tying it right to their blood is so. I mean, that's just the sorcerer to the nth degree. So, like, I really, I enjoyed this one of all of them. This will be the one that I would play. Um, <laughs> Me too, given my my yeah. proclivity for sorcerers. Um, especially with the uh, with the wakeful, I think being able to like I'd flavor it with you know it's your bone marrow and not your blood, but the idea of breaking a rib and drawing a sword out of the marrow is just ridiculously flavorful. Um, and then the uh, the last one we have here is a wizard subclass um, uh, called the uh, Hierophant, and. Yes. So I was I was looking through this one and I was having a little bit of difficulty grabbing um grabbing the uh the idea of the divine magic um wizard, right? Sure. It's um I I get to the arcane magic cleric because you can worship a god of arcana, right? Yes. But having um having a wizard that is tapped into the um to the concept of the divine magic and whatnot made me pause for a moment and go, well, wait a minute. That's not what the class is about. And then I'm sitting here thinking like I had helped Dan who people on the uh, listeners will know Dan, obviously um, he's uh he went off to like Bible school. People go off to just learn religion. Right. And don't necessarily end up, you know, worshiping in a church or a temple would would you right? be surprised to know that one of our team members is a religion major a theology major who is an atheist well there you go right i mean <laughs> look i myself i myself am not a churchgoer my god i've read the bible front to back like three times and sure. i did it once because i was in a uh, a lit course and i wanted to to have a better idea of the metaphors that were being thrown around you know pre-18th century so like and right. it was it, and that's what it was when in literature so right everything was tied back to religion so it's cool to see this side of um of a wizard because it was really something that i not only had never thought of but didn't even feel right until i stopped to think about it and went oh shit there's something that was completely outside my wheelhouse that sure. never would have occurred to me but what would have occurred to uh, on on the podcast you know Brad and Dan and Tyler absolutely would have been like yeah sure that's a thing Nope, totally bypassed me. So it was cool to see it here. I'm um, glad we could sell it on you a little, sell you on it a little bit. Yeah, it's um, yeah, sort of the I, inverse I, inverse of that arc, uh, knowledge cleric, right? Where it's the it's the the wizard that studies divine magic and thus uses that as sort of it, almost almost like any other spell school, right? Yeah, it was. I honestly, I looked at this page and the art is beautiful for it. I absolutely love the art, but. Uh, but, but it, uh, the first thing that caught my eye was uh, lesser restoration on a wizard spell list. What are you doing? What, Heresy. what is this nonsense? And, and and then I went digging, and I'm like, okay, 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 okay. I'm I'm in. 
So for sure. Well, and I'll, I'll say this too, you know, with as many off the wall ideas we have going here, it's very possible that that they won't all be hits for everyone. And, and at the end of the day, that's okay. Because as long as you know, we can, as long as there's a few people who love the idea, that's what's important to us. Yeah. And look, there's a consistency here that I, I harp on a lot. Um, the idea of when you're DMing, you need to have a basic level of consistency. Otherwise, you start to lose the trust of your players. So um, there is a consistency behind all of these decisions and uh, all of these design choices that I really appreciate. Um, the idea of looking at something that we think we know from a different perspective and finding something new. Um, you're going to get different kinds of characters, and there's something for different kinds of players, which is phenomenal. Um, I'm assuming that the subclasses are going to be a decent chunk of the book. Are you planning on hitting all of the, uh, all of the classes? Uh, yes. Well, for the most part with, with, with an asterisk. So we are going to be doing at least two to three subclasses per class, uh, mm -hmm. with room to expand, uh, just where appropriate, uh, where it feels appropriate. Yeah. So it is going to be a sizable portion of the book for sure. Um, the only class that we will not be including is the Artificer. And that is <laughs> yeah. simply for copyright reasons. Yeah. We are unable to do so. We have created Artificers and it's we created them as fan content under the fan content policy. Yeah. Um, but we are just unable to to do anything else. So unfortunately, artificers will be excluded. Yes, there's been quite a bit of uh, outrage about that online um, recently, and uh, and I get that completely. The idea of of pulling back on the artificer. I know a lot of people have pulled back and actually pulled some of their artificer published material, understanding sure. now that it's not covered by the OGL. Sure. Well, for what it's worth, you can still, you know, pop by our website and and see what we've made. I think we have like four or five artificer subclasses, but they, well, they, yeah. they will not be making an appearance in this book. Well, yeah. And that's the thing is you can't charge money for them, right? Like that's right. That's yep, the yep. deal. The next portion of the PDF here uh, digs into expanded weapons. And so there are a few things here that are really Okay, so there's some throwbacks to 3.5 that I really appreciate, uh, like the idea of um, there being keen weapons, which allows you to get a crit on a 19 or a 20. Um, yes. You have uh, it broken down so different classes can use different uh, weapons as part of their, like, you know, even everybody can use a dagger, but only um, uh, some classes can use martial weapons or druids get all sorts of special rules and shit like that. So you guys have mm -hmm. added to those lists based on your pretty extensive expanded weapons list. Um, I like the fact that you have included shields as weapons. Um, and I wanted to just touch on this. I want to go through it really quickly because you've got so many of them here. Um, sure. but yeah, we don't, we don't need to talk about all of them. Um, but I saw brass knuckles, boomerangs, katanas, and wakizashis and a war scythe. That made me really happy. I also see the war fan there uh, with the inclusion of a lot of um, of Eastern culture uh, weaponry as well, which I'm I am currently in the middle of a Legend of the Five Rings campaign. Um, oh, spectacular. So, yeah, so seeing this pop up here made me grin quite a bit. I'm like, Wakizashi, I can use that in my game. So, <laughs> um, um, but uh, I also see a lot of throwbacks 
to previous editions, like the composite bow and the repeating crossbow, the buckler and the shuriken, the idea that we uh, have these now um, in fifth edition. Frankly, they were missing, and I've complained kind of in the past about some of these um, not being available as weapons in fifth edition. My favorite two editions, uh, though, to this were the 10 foot pole as a weapon because yes. that's so fucking classic D. &D. Um, and then the lit torch as a weapon, which yes. everybody, every table has been like, what happens if I hit him with the torch? Well, now there are there's like legit rules for it. And not now only is it a, not only is it a light weapon, but it's also a light weapon. So that's that's true. It's a lit light weapon. Yeah. <laughs> um uh and a special shout out, of course, to the Molotov cocktail. I'm glad that made the list as well. So I had a good I had a good chuckle. <laughs> Up next uh, is a section on feats. I'm always glad when I see additional feats um, because feats can get overlooked in homebrew content and in third-party creations. However, they're also really, really hard to keep balanced. Um, yes. And Even for wizards themselves. Oh my god, yes. Um, <laughs> I've got to say, though, there were a couple here that I went, you know what? This had better be good, and it it delivered. Um, the blowgun master was fun. The horde skirmisher, the idea that you are just good at fighting in a mass combat uh, in a battle, um, is really flavorful. And I like the shit that they can do too. The uh, the slipper the slippery escapist is a lot of fun. Um, and makes sense for mass combat. And that's the thing is they the are all about the next logical step in the thought process here. Um, which is really fun. I wanted to ask, though, you have listed here in the preview Conjuration Adept and Evocation Adept. Do you have Adepts yes. for each one of the schools? Yes, we uh, either have them uh, developed or in development, and our plan is to have a, a, a feat for each of those schools uh, present in the book. Something we wanted to do with the book, I mentioned how I always like to play casters. Part of that is because it feels like, uh, you know, martial characters are just at such a lack of options sometimes. Yeah. Um, and so both of the expanded weapons and the feats, that was very much one of our primary goals uh, to uh, primary challenges to address, I suppose. Um, and so despite that, we wanted to make sure that we weren't leaving spellcasters behind. Uh, mm -hmm. We wanted to, you know, serve that as well. And while we have a bunch of really great spellcasting feats, it's kind of crazy to me that we don't have anything that focuses on schools. And in a lot of ways, outside of like wizard subclasses, it feels to me that the schools are kind of an afterthought in fifth edition. The, yeah, they're a holdover from previous editions, and it feels that way. Um, you can tell that they were trying to lean into it early in the fifth edition. Um, lifespan but they've since given up on that um and i mean you kind of have to when you need to come up with more wizarding schools um are you thinking at all about the um other kinds of wizards or um other spellcaster subclasses like different feats for um the different warlock patrons for example uh, yes so we don't have any warlock material in the preview uh but i can say um that one of my favorite things I've, I've, I've created for Warlock uh, is called the Pact of the Marked, uh, which is this idea of your body being marked in some way by your patron. Uh, and so that is something we are planning on including. 
alongside uh, a whole variety of subclasses and uh, eldritch invocations. So the warlock will definitely be served by this book as well. Cool, cool. Uh, the, it's funny. Warlock is one of those things that I feel just never gets considered in the grand design scheme of things. Um, so it's, it's nice hard to, to because there's so much of it and it's ever expanding. Yeah. And a lot of it doesn't make sense. The fact that we have an undying and an undead warlock patron feels well, I, very, very strange. I think the reason that happened, if I'm if I'm if I'm not incorrect, which one came first? Was it the, the undying came first? The undying was the one that came first. I think if I'm remembering correctly, the undying was really, really underwhelming. Yeah. So I think I think the undeath was kind of just a, a retry. <laughs> In some yeah. ways, as yeah, weird the, as that is. The Undying was such a weird... I want to say it was Sword Coast Adventures Guide, which should tell you everything you need to know. Sure, yeah. So, um, speaking of, of design missteps, that book, oh my god. Um, <laughs> the other cool thing here is the Prosthetic Prodigy. This is another feat here. Um, yes. And again, I like to see the uh, inclusion... Factor here, the art is really cool. That is a badass uh, prosthetic leg. Uh, my dad only had one leg um, when uh, for the last, like, oh, God, number of years of his life. Um, so it's cool for me to be able to see this stuff. And I've become more aware of, like, mobility issues and stuff like that. But, uh, but it's cool to see this kind of representation out there for people. Um, yeah, and it's it's important to us too with with Dungeons and Dragons being you know obviously a game for fantasy, a game for role playing. You know, it's it's sort of a power fantasy. Oftentimes, uh, we want to make sure that you can play these different kinds of characters with these different kinds of bodies, uh, and we want to make sure that you can do that in a way that feels unique and in some ways empowering. Because mm -hmm. you know, it no one in real life can cast magic. But yeah. fifth edition allows you to do so, and so sure, maybe no one with a prosthetic leg can integrate, you know, <laughs> high tech tools into their leg, uh, or you know, yeah. use it as a weapon or anything like that. But it's a fantasy game, and so yeah. and so we're trying to really develop these concepts into into something that plays well with the rest of the spirit of fifth edition. Um, which actually brings me to the next thing, and that is. You guys have created these character tables, and I assume that there's going to be a whole lot more in the finished pro product. Oh, yes. So yeah. this is uh, my team it member, Nona's Baby, and this this was, uh, these two pages were the result of me <laughs> saying, no, 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 we got to, hold on, tone it back, it's just the preview, it's just the preview. You know, uh, I expect I would expect a sizable portion of the book to be things, to, to be character tables as well. Now, We've got a couple of people, a couple of hosts on the podcast who absolutely love the character the character creation tables in Xanathar's Guide to Everything. And as a matter yes. of fact, I've got a player who's also one of the hosts, Dave, who, um, God, every time he makes a character and he sits at my table with a new character, he rolls it randomly. God knows what we're going to get. And it's right. wild. He was a Leonan wild magic barbarian, and now he is a fairy scout rogue um and he is not a good role player but he's a great strategist and that's what he leans into so he's all about the tactics so he rolls randomly and it's absolutely fucking wild um i i love to see random tables like these because as random as they are 
they're not just random. There's information behind it. And there's clearly right. a design here. We take the first one, um, and it's this is a section randomly choosing your race. The commonality of how common our race is, and you're rolling D100, so it's your percentile dice. A 1 to 50 means it's common. 51 to 85 means uncommon. And 86 to 100 means rare. And these are the different playable races, of course, that you can play. And the rare are all the ones that are outside of, I guess, Xanathar's, right? And Xanathar's, or sorry, outside of uh, Volos. And Volos would be the one um, that had all of the, like, uncommon races. Orc and Hobgoblin and Goblin and shit, right? Um, whereas the player's handbook races uh, are the common ones. Human, Dwarf, Elf, and Halfling are the ones that you decided. Interesting that you decided not to go Gnome or Half-Elf for, yes, for so common but I don't hate that. I like that. It makes halflings and gnomes different. So we used the um, we used the player's handbook actually to help uh, inform this. And I want to clarify: these are um, completely usable uh, right out of the book, but they are also customizable. And these are example tables. Really, our goal with these is to allow you uh, to create sort of a multi-tiered rolling system that is setting appropriate. Mm -hmm. um so you know it, it, as far as the player's handbook is concerned humans dwarves elves halflings are, are are the core four races and then the others listed so that would be you know your dragonborns gnomes half elves etc uh those are also perfectly as valid but maybe at least as far as the forgotten realms is concerned less common um and so we used that as a guideline for creating these examples uh to A, give you something usable out of the box, and B, show you ways that you can do this with your own setting. Uh, and it adds some nuance to that rolling so that it's not just like a, you know, reincarnation table, right? Where there's yeah. an equal chance of being anything at all, um, which is its own thing, certainly. Um, but there's there's some nuance and some appropriateness to, to how you roll here that can even be used as a DM in terms of deciding town populations uh, or or anything like that. One of the things that I've got to say that I love about this is this informs me about when I am building a, um, a settlement. This informs me how many of each NPC races will be there. Right. right. So I know that I'm going to be majority human, but how many half orcs does that add to the mix? And as I consistently work my way through these tables, I will get population percentages out of this. So there's use as a DM for this beyond just a player rolling. Right. What's beautiful about that randomness, too, is you may say, OK, I'm going to have some amount of tiefling population in my world. And you might be rolling for a city or a town and you will, for whatever reason, it's random. Right. So you, will, you might roll an unusually high level of tieflings. Yeah. And that right there is just a jumping off point for that, that, that provides you inspiration for something that you may not have thought of. So now the question is, well, why are there so many tieflings? What yeah. does that mean for the town? Uh, how does that impact the culture of the town? Yeah. So I really appreciate this. I'm, and I love sections like tables like this. Um, the other thing that I saw here, and it's, this is going to be useful for people that are aware of, but are not necessarily involved with the LGBT community. Um, is you guys have a queerness table, um, yes. as well with, it looks like it's just broken down into sixths essentially. 
um, on the percentile dice, just to give kind of a, um, a, a, cross a basic section, overview really. yeah. Um, yeah. of the different options out there um, if you wanted to embrace that. Again, I've got I've got a couple of uh of queer players at my table as well. I've I've DM'd for um for people that identify um uh in different ways and have different um I see I don't want to out anybody, it's not my place, but I've got some sure. experience with this at my table. And so I have started myself including NPCs that are non-binary, that go by uh them, they pronouns and, and shit like that, just as extra representation and having something like this laid out to say, hey, you know what, these are the different kinds of characters, NPCs that I can add in there to just make it more real. People like this do exist. So even if you don't have anybody at your table who is bisexual, doesn't mean that you can't have a bisexual NPC. Right. Or a bisexual character. Uh, part of Part of the fun of D&D is being able to, you know, role play as someone you're not and explore new perspectives. So the queerness table is sort of a microcosm of what we're planning to include as far as things like that are concerned. Uh, we're planning on including, you know, tables regarding anything from eye color to to fears to yeah. uh, anything along those levels uh, that just all of this is meant to be inspirational insofar as, you know, what are what are aspects to a character that I may have otherwise not considered, right? Yeah, because honestly, we do have our cookie cutter defaults. I know mm -hmm. when I look at, at my own list and I say, hey, uh, I rolled up a dwarf. I need a dwarf NPC. I know who that is already because I've had a thousand dwarf NPCs. They all kind of fit the same thing. Now I'm sitting here looking at all these different tables and say, oh, shit, this one has freaking gray hair. Oh, I'm going to make them older. This one right. is is polyamorous. They have three partners, right? Like, and that never would have occurred to me because I have run dwarves for so many years, right? Right. So as a and, DM, and the, I find this shit very helpful to go through tables like this. Right. The foundation that that can provide for storytelling that you just may not have considered that will probably, since it's not something that's necessarily within your normal wheelhouse, will be really refreshing for you and your players, I think is really valuable. Yeah, I absolutely love this. This is one of the highlights of the whole thing. It's it's cool that it's going to get uh, expanded so much as well. Um, yes. Um, next up, you guys got into spells. And again, we could go through them all, but we're we're running out of time here. So I'm going gonna, gonna to try to list off the highlights that stood out to me. Um, first of all, thank you for including a fourth level acid spell and additional <laughs> cold spells because geez, we are just missing those. Um, yep. also the first level spell disarm, very much appreciated. Uh, that is, that feels like a throwback from 3.5 as well. Um, the, uh, I was, it's funny. We recorded an episode. I mean, here's a spoiler. We recorded an episode, me and Dave and Kyle, last night where we were talking about the disarm mechanics mm -hmm. and um, can you use a spell to disarm someone? It says you can use an attack to, but they've got to roll the attack. So yes, Eldritch Blast and Firebolt. No, technically you can't disarm with sleep, even though they fall asleep. Right. And sure, you can't, yeah. and you can't disarm with a fireball, right. Or disintegrate because it's uh it has to be a specific role. So like we were, we were tossing that back and forth. Um, and uh, and so I'm glad to see this spell pop up here uh, as kind yeah. of the answer to that. Uh, also, it's really helpful to have this table here list out 
Is it concentration? Is it ritual? Is it a ritual? And what classes um, uh, it can be applied to? Are you guys, when your final product, are you going to do that big page that Wizards always does where it lists out here are the bard spells by level? Here are the cleric by level? Or are you going to keep it on charts like this? Uh, it it depends. So this works very well. This is a table actually modeled off of how Tasha's Cauldron of Everything yep. handled things. Um, and it's really helpful. One of my biggest pet peeves with the player's handbook and with a lot of sort of spell expansions is that they're actually kind of a pain to flip through. Uh, mm -hmm. It's not easy to quick reference what is and is not concentration, what is and is not a ritual, yeah. Um, and what school it, it's it, it it can really be a pain so for a smaller document like this um this table works really well i think we are planning on having quite a few spells this is just the preview and i think there's about a dozen here or so yeah um, and so i am not sure how digestible that would be on a table like this. It would be a say, lot. It would be yeah. information overload for a lot of people. What I will say is that I'm going to do my best, given those issues I have with larger spell expansions, to expand the use case of the formatting of that section. Uh, and that may include just, you know, telling you on a big class spell list you know what is and is not a ritual what is and is not concentration i'll be experimenting with tags and things like that it's not really settled at this moment but it is something i'm thinking about fair enough um i'm gonna i'm gonna just move through these uh my favorite ones um right off the top though were consume memories that one is super flavorful and as a dm it's fucky. That's that's sixth level necromancy, and I love it. My favorite thing about it is that you can actually steal memories from the dead. And the only way that... The, so if you were to um, speak with dead, they may not remember that information if you're trying to get past it. This is one of those things where it's like, why do you bother to make mysteries in Dungeons & Dragons when you can just have them speak with dead? And now suddenly we know who the murderer was. This gives me a way around that, and it's... It answers a question that uh, I've seen people ask. Um, so I like that. I also like Prepare for Adventure, the first level spell. That one was a lot of fun where you can essentially just, uh, uh, as, a, as a first level spell, you conjure up um, random adventuring material that you want. And it lasts for eight hours, and then it goes back to whoever you stole it from, which is yes, which you, is really you reach fun. into the you reach into <laughs> the uh, endless pocket dimensions created by bags of holding, you know. Yeah. So I like to imagine, you know, there's someone across the country whose campaign you've just ruined because their, <laughs> their, their wizard staff just isn't quite there anymore. Um, um I did want to ask: you've got a, a third level transmutation spell called Granny Green Wart's Hissing Boils. Do you yes. guys, without going into the spell, do you guys know who Granny Greenwart is, or is this just a name? Is this an NPC from your own campaigns? Uh, so it is analogous to an NPC okay. uh, from our campaigns. We're big fans of hags, uh, yep. and Granny Greenwart is most certainly a hag. Oh, oh <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, and the spell itself is just so nasty. Uh, for those curious, it allows you to essentially make these spontaneous bubbling boils appear on someone's skin and then explode with acid, uh, 
when you stop concentrating on the spell. And so that just seemed like such a just such a gnarly, horrible concept that that a hag just seemed entirely appropriate. I love it. I also think that you guys have really done your due diligence on the uh, material components as well. Without awesome. without Thank going you. into them, a lot of the times I don't think they necessarily make sense um, in other stuff that I've read. This it's all thematic. It all makes sense, and it's all easy enough to come across. Right. Like it makes sense that you would have these things instead of a 15,000 gold piece worth of a, of diamond dust. Like, where the fuck right. do you get that from? Right. But a handful of poison berries. Yeah. Yeah. I can do that with the, with a nature check. So, right. For sure. Um, I also liked Stone Mound had a skipping stone, specifically a skipping stone. And that just conjured <laughs> up in my head the idea of a wizard. And a barbarian arguing about what constitutes a skipping stone as they're sure, standing at the yeah. edge of the lake, right? I so. think, yeah, material components, they don't often come up because, you know, obviously your arcane focus can substitute for them. But yeah. even even Wizards of the Coast, I think, does a great job of, of providing these fun little nods and ideas that often go ignored. I don't know if you're aware, but detect thoughts uh its material components is i believe a copper piece uh because yep. you know you're giving a penny for your thoughts yeah i that's that's one of my favorite ones the um i'm trying to remember i think it's darkness who uses bat guano because where would you get bat guano in the dark oh, it's not fireball actually is, is it fireball yes that's that's bat guano yes um because <laughs> i assume it burns um i suppose so i'll be honest i'm not sure quite what the what the the impetus there was that might be a holdover from previous editions actually one of our hosts uh terry played a disgusting dragonborn druid a couple of years ago (laughs) um who absolutely loved to cast fireball um and he did it by eating his everything he cast he ate the spell components so when it came to bat guano it was always a delicacy for him so That's that one was... of my favorite ways to play a druid. I feel like too many druids, you know, they're wild men. They're too sort of like primped and pampered. Yeah. Make druids nasty again. Uh, <laughs> yes, I've gone off on rants about that. If you don't have boils <laughs> and fungus between your toes, you're not doing it right. <laughs> um, so the next section is magic items. Uh, again, we've got a list here. Uncommon, rare, and very rare. Will you guys be including common magic items, like magical trinkets, or are we focused on like the legendary items? Um, we 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 certainly plan to. Uh, it's right now we wanted to focus on things that felt a little more impactful. Um, and if we are including a mad common magic items are are difficult, honestly, because it's hard to really strike that balance between trinket an uncommon magic item where it should do something for you um but yeah i find also that if if you don't know what your what your setting is you don't know how Mm -hmm. common these like is a a stone that just glows with bright light for an hour is that game breaking for some settings because that would be incredibly powerful in greyhawk and completely ignored in Eberron. Right. Well, and obviously it's all at the DM's discretion as to what yeah. they do and don't want to include. Uh, so short answer, yes, we want to include common magic items, uh, but it was not a focus at all for uh, our preview here. And when we do include them, they will probably sort of be a, a minority of what's available. Uh, that's fair enough. Um, 
I love little magical trinkets and stuff, but honestly, it's usually an afterthought. Um, and uh, it's more for flavor than anything else. And if you are going to have a big 300-page book or 200-page book or whatever it is, and you've devoted three pages to common magic items, it almost feels like filler and fluff. Yeah, so that's that's three pages that has been devoted to uh, something that will likely be more impactful as the campaign progresses. So. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. Um, for the magic items that you do have listed, um, there are 10 items on the list, and each one does have a full breakdown. And it's very much in the same wording that you expect to see in a Wizards of the Coast product. Um, there is a magical artifact called the Blackened Blade, uh, that I don't want to give too much away on, um, but it has a rich lore. It's got a curse. There's some spells stored inside it. And uh, there are special rules for destroying the blade, which I really appreciate. That's very fun and very reminiscent of like legendary items. Um, I got to say the art for the coat of arms made me laugh because it is literally a coat with six arms. Um, yes, yes. And that's, that was... Uh... That was probably one of my favorite pieces. You know, sometimes you come up with these ideas and it's especially a, an issue with magic items because they can be so strange. Uh, yeah. And so, you know, sometimes you pass on an idea to an artist and you just have no idea what you're going to get back. Uh, <laughs> but I, I've just been I've been floored every time we've gotten something uh, with this book. And the coat of arms is among my favorite. We'll be getting to another one of my favorites soon enough. Um. I'm curious to know which which one the uh, I I really like the the ring of dying was particularly flavorful and neat I liked that but I wanted to focus on the the last page before we get into the um, before it's the OGL so you gave us two items here there's the shield of shouting which by the way if I saw this in real life just based on the art it would scare the shit out of me that is an <laughs> yes. uncomfortable piece of art. So speak, speaking of my favorite piece, uh, yeah. <laughs> Shield of Shouting would be it. And it's just the Shield of Shouting is sort of this congruence of it's well, it's a sentient magic item, right? So yeah. this thing will be talking to you. Uh, no, and... no, it won't. it'll be bitching to you. And that's <laughs> that's what I love yes. about it. This thing feels like uh, like like Marvin from uh, from uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. The sure yeah yeah right so so we well really and, and and speaking of the art really what we wanted to with the shield of shouting we wanted only bad vibes <laughs> so yeah the shield of shouting is a mix of you know horrific and annoying and pitiful and just sort of all of these terrible qualities uh that have been <laughs> entrenched into this 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 wretched little magic item that is nonetheless uh quite useful so i i like i like the idea of this a giving the dungeon master a chance to talk some shit um, amongst the party but b uh i like it i like the idea that this will create a little bit of tension in terms of the item being useful in combat and in other scenarios but also just being not necessarily mechanically a problem, but just through its sheer annoyance a problem. I love that it considers itself to be a hostage, but yes. it's still going to go along with whatever you do. 
Like, I, it just, uh, I love this. I have had NPCs that have fit this narrative role in the past, but to tie it to a piece of equipment that your characters want to keep for mechanical reasons is a stroke of genius. And I, well, and what I is, quite enjoyed that. You, you uh, have to wonder, what is this thing going to sound like every time you block an attack with it, right? <laughs> Here we go again, goddammit. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I think it's really fun. The other one here that I really liked is right beside it, which is the Sturge Spike, which is the spear with the um the tip that breaks off and does necrotic damage um at the beginning of the creature's turn. Um, yes, very fun. We've got a love hate relationship with Sturges on the podcast, so um, I will be stealing this for my campaign. I want you to know that's going to be fun. Um, I'm glad to hear it. Yeah, yeah. We've, we've done we've done a little play with it ourselves, and it really it, it it's it provides some some new dimensions to combat that we've been really happy with. I, I have to ask. Um, okay, so we've gotten to the end, and I don't. I've done everything in my power to not weigh in on the OGL nonsense with wizards, um, sure. and uh, so I do appreciate that it's listed here at the end. I think legally you have to, but it's. It's mm-hmm. good to see that it's still in effect. Um, but I've got to, uh, I want to ask, there are two things that I was looking for in this PDF. And I'm like, I wonder if they will include. And those are sure. monster stat blocks and NPCs. Sure. So NPCs, we don't plan on having any pre-built NPCs at this moment. Um now, as far as the character creation tables, what we do plan to do is give DMs a lot of tools by which to create NPCs. Sure. Um, and now some of the items as well, uh, and some of, some of the pieces throughout the book uh, can provide some additional inspiration. So you mentioned the Black and Blade has some lore um, that yeah. can be, you know, that can be the foundation of an entire quest right there. Uh, and some of the central figures there are laid out uh, for you should you want to use them. Uh, so, so we do plan on including flavor that's very useful, and some of that will be adjacent to NPCs, as well as the ability uh, and the tools to create your own and to help you do that. But we don't plan on having any kind of section of NPCs. Uh, the same is true of monsters. Now, monsters are one of my favorite things to create. And so it took some self-restraint not to include them. But the issue with including monsters in this book is that monsters, I mean, there's a monster manual for a reason, and that is its own book. So including a sections on monsters, including a section on monsters rather, would unfortunately just take away from our ability to include other pieces of content. So what I can say is that um, we have created a ton of monsters in the past and we are looking forward, you know, on on future horizons. uh, If we get the chance to create a a monster compendium and really just devote an entire book to that concept rather than just a section at the end here, uh, that is something we're very interested in doing. Uh, but it's just not quite within the scope of Tales from the Firelight Gathering. And if I can be like completely honest, I'm glad to hear that. I am a big fan. Every time that we do a Legend Lore episode, I'm eager to get to the bestiary at the back. That is my favorite part of every one of the books. But this is clearly a player companion, not a dungeon master tool. There's no 
overland travel rules or you know random dungeon generator rules in this right this is very much races classes um and feats and spells things that a dm can use for inspiration and it's great for dms to pick up but this is for you to have as a player to hand out to the players at your table if you are a dm there's a lot of flavor in here because i mean like on average what 80 percent of the players at a table like 80 Uh, people are players right at least (laughs) yeah so um, it's um it's it's definitely not a dungeons master's guide or anything like that we do plan on including a few uh alternate rule sets uh but anything we include will be you know player side focused or at the very least table focused so we have we've been working with resting rules uh, normal D&D resting rules have their own issues um, yep. and the the offered uh, alternative in gritty realism through the DMG <laughs> is 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 not much better in my mind. So so there are again, we are trying to plug some holes. Uh, and so we are planning on including some alternate rule scapes, but it's going to be uh, play feel related. It's all going to be player side related it's going to be related to their experience and uh what it is they're doing within the game so definitely as you say this is a this is a player focused supplement uh with uh some some tools that dms can use at their disposal do you think you're going to add backgrounds or full classes beyond just the subclasses for the base 12 as far as full classes are concerned uh they are a beast among themselves um yes so they are we yeah. we have made uh now three classes i believe uh four actually four classes um over sort of our course of homebrewing and one of them the enjoiner is a summoner character it's an intelligence half caster and that is something that we are looking to include in the book uh but that is going to be a stretch goal for the campaign because uh, classes just, A, they take up a lot of uh, real estate within the book, uh, and B, they take up a lot of time and resources to develop. Uh, that is something that we can only include uh, you know, responsibly if we reach a certain level of funding. So we do have stretch goals planned uh, for things like classes, uh, but that is going to be dependent on sort of how the project shapes up. Um, and then you asked about not only classes, but what else? But, but backgrounds as well. Backgrounds. So backgrounds, we probably won't be including, if anything, just because uh, backgrounds we found to be sort of what players get the least excited about. And not only that, um, but the amount of backgrounds that are available already are just there's a there's over really staggering yeah, yeah there's over there is, so it's nuts so so we're not sure that we can add much more to that we do we've 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 experimented with creating backgrounds in the past um the people who like them really like them but it is a small small minority of people who really get excited about them um so i mean i would say you know if backgrounds are something you're interested in uh, it's something we've done in the past. You can check it out uh, on our on our website. But for the purposes of this book, I think that real estate can just be better served for you know additional subclasses, additional player options, things like that. Things that have a real mechanical benefit. And I'll say this too: 
the character creation tables will in many ways uh, help inspire your characters in the same ways that a traditional background would. Yeah, it'll flesh out a backstory, if not necessarily the mechanical background as, as we're used to seeing in 5th edition. Right, it'll be a really good companion piece to the pre-existing backgrounds. Yeah, and like to to your point, um, to both your points about uh, classes and backgrounds, um, for classes, it's not just building a class. You then have to build multiple subclasses for it, which is just an insane amount of effort, right? Yes. Um, <laughs> and then balance them all against each other and then balance them all against the other classes. When people complain there are not enough classes in 5th edition, I look around and I go, uh, aren't there? We seem to have most of what we need and we can fit a subclass onto one to, to fill a niche. Um, it's something we experimented with, and after our first uh, class, it's something we've been really progressively more and more strict about <laughs> what we yeah. allow to be a class and not. Because I'll say this much, the, the homebrew space is chock full of classes. And a lot of times, it seems like these things would be better uh, better served as a different kind of player option. Um, so yeah. if we're going to include a class, it's going to be because it truly feels unique. Speak to your point on subclasses. Yeah, that's definitely an additional challenge because it would be really awkward to include a class and only have, you know, three, four subclasses available for it alongside all of our other support to these legacy classes that now have, you know, 20 plus subclasses. Yeah, if we're going to include a class. We're going to really flesh it out. Uh, and so I would expect, you know, within the double digits range of subclasses, if we do include a class. Uh, yeah. And honestly, there's um, that is such a massive undertaking. As far as yes. backgrounds go, I don't particularly see the purpose in it. And even Wizards of the Coast now, the last time, like the last couple of publications, the only backgrounds they're adding are setting specific backgrounds. There's nothing right. there that's um, just like random uh, bartender like we don't get that anymore it is specifically the knight of this order or this kind of spell jamming pirate or whatever it is right like it has to be so specific because i mean the base rule of it it's not even a variant rule as rules is written make it up do what you want right so i mean we can publish them all day every day but why people can do what they want anyway from the from the very beginning right so. for sure and and they're not they're not very mechanically intensive so so as far as you know part of part of what we do is a service where we are creating things that you can have confidence will be balanced and will function well uh and so backgrounds are are, are a much much easier undertaking and i'd encourage listeners if, if they haven't really delved into homebrew brewing backgrounds are a great place to start um now all that's to say this is just plans right now you know we're gonna have to see how things shake out it's very possible that plans change um but right now with uh you know we've got a lot of years in the space creating and with what we've seen from the community we don't expect to include backgrounds and uh classes will very much be uh dependent on what our our funding allows us to do that's fair um so we've covered a lot in this episode already, but have we missed anything in the publication? Is there anything that's sneaky that's that you guys have been that wasn't a part of the preview that you guys are looking at uh, at adding 
um, outside of kind of kind of what we've talked about already? Nothing that I can reveal now. I've also <laughs> I've already been a little cheeky in terms of talking about the Pact of the Marked Warlock uh, and things like that. So we've got a lot of plans, and a lot of it is under wraps, either because sure. we're just waiting to release it. Or um, it's still in development, and we're not gonna we're not gonna release something until we're we're confident that it's at least presentable, right? That's fair enough. And everything in this seems to not just be presentable, but of the highest caliber as well. So I'm I'm absolutely in love with this. Is there anything that you are excited about that you can tell us about that we that we didn't cover in the preview? So uh, we we were talking in expanded weapons about the ten foot pole as a weapon, right? Um, and <laughs> yep. that's a little silly, obviously, but it's a lot of fun. Uh, so we have created many many rogue subclasses, and this is still in development. So I can't I can't talk too specific on it. Uh, but we've made rogue subclasses that play with the ways that you can use sneak attack. Uh, the weapons you can use to do so, and how that kind of changes the feeling of the rogue. So I would expect the, the the weapons on the weapons tables do not exist in a vacuum within this book. Uh, I would expect subclasses that are going to interact with those weapons. Um, and one of our classic creations is a rogue subclass called the Volter, uh, which is sort of this, you know, Robin-esque uh, pole vaulting uh hero right uh, i like it or, i like I suppose it villain if you're a rogue <laughs> I, I like it because it's a pun too on the you know bank vaults yeah that's true uh and so i don't know exactly how we're going to adapt that to this book but i can tell you that it is almost certainly going to interact with the 10 foot pole as a weapon uh <laughs> and we're really going to be playing with the mechanics there so look forward to uh to subclasses that really put those new weapons to use. That's fun. I, I'm excited about that. Like I say, playing in L5R right now with um, seeing the Wakazashi, but also the war fan there, loads of fun. I'm I'm excited for that. And I don't think that every player is going to pick up this book and be like, hey, this is uh, the, this war fan, what the hell is that about, right? Like they're not going to necessarily get it, but those mm -hmm. that do will fucking love it and so if you've got a subclass that leans into that that explains it a bit that's going to help right you know everybody across the board um, for sure for sure and you're looking at uh at actually printing right like this isn't just pdf ideally yes, with, this uh, is, with this uh, is a stretch goals and whatnot well even if we fund it all this is a hardcover book uh, you can back at a tier that will secure you a hardcover copy um and we are you know we've got several different printers we're talking to we're going to be working out you know what works best for us um and our needs we're going to be working out who can give us you know the best quality print um and so that's all stuff that we'll obviously be handling behind the scenes uh once we fund but um yeah it is it is a it is a first and foremost it is a printed uh expansion that can sit on your shelf right next to your 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 other fifth edition materials and uh so that is that is the plan right on well, Tales of the Firelit Gathering is available on Kickstarter as of today. So you can check the show notes below for the links to both the Gelatinous Cubicle website as well as the Kickstarter page. Go show them love and support and back them if you have the spare coinage. For those of you in the know, the D&D community has been in a hell of a struggle with Wizards of the Coast and Hasbro over the last few weeks. And hundreds, if not thousands of people fought hard for the public to retain the ability to create and publish material 
for D&D 5th edition. Material like this. And this is some of the highest quality that I've seen developed by a third party. I'm so stoked about a project like this um, and the fact that it's able to move forward under the old OGL because the quality and passion on display here is really second to none. So thanks for joining me on this episode, Trent, and thank you for sharing your passion project with me and with the community and our listeners. And for the listeners, thanks for listening to this special episode of Legend Lore from the It's a Mimic podcast. If you or someone you know is working on a project they'd like to showcase on It's a Mimic, please reach out to us at our email, info at itsamimic.com. For other D&D conversations, check out the playlists we built on YouTube or browse the episode guide on our website. And thank you again for listening in to It's a Mimic, where you never know what you're going to get. I will say, as far as, and this is, you know, feel free to edit this out if this is too much of a tangent, but uh, as when, when we talk about who's making the decisions about what appears in the book, what was really an eye-opening thing for me was the Tasha's Cauldron of Everything, which I like quite a bit, actually, um, but the magical tattoos section. Um, mm -hmm. I am personally uh, very invested uh, in sort of the body modification community. Um, I have a lot, a lot of tattoos. Uh, it's something that's very important to me personally. And the implementation of that mechanic throughout Tasha's cauldron of everything was very unsatisfactory, I find, um, where, I mean, it's essentially, you know, magical temporary tattoos that require it. it I understand there's certainly balanced concerns, but as as someone who who's deeply invested in the culture of tattoos and what they mean, again, it it didn't deliver on that fantasy for me. Mm -hmm. using that mechanic in a game is not going to help me feel like I am uh, that kind of person. It's not going to make me feel like I have magical tattoos. It's going to make me feel like I, you know, painted some, some magical marker on, on my skin. Um, yeah, it, it didn't and, feel like a character choice. It felt like a thing you're doing now with this item and then you move on. Exactly. And the wakeful uh, was actually something we looked to address through that. Uh, you know, the idea of a skeleton uh, and being a skeleton who sort of is always regenerating. Always, always, the body is always healing itself. Really presented the opportunity for imagine the kind of crazy body modifications you could do if that's the kind of body you had and so yeah. wakeful one of my favorite things about them personally is that they carve things into themselves to help distinguish themselves from each other and yeah. they will you know create sheaths for their daggers out of their ribs and put spell components within their skulls so yeah, I I really I love the flavor of the wakeful, but I we could make we could make this episode just about the wakeful. So I gotta I gotta yeah, sure. I gotta move forward. Um, and exactly. of course, I mean for anybody listening who who wants to fix this problem, uh, Wizards of the Coast does not own the word artificer, and you can always make your own class with different rules called an artificer. <laughs> just 
maybe maybe seek a little legal counsel if that's something you're going to be selling that, that would be my only advice i'm trying to sow chaos stop 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 stopping on my dreams 